0: Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap. And we are continuing to talk about America in the wake of the death of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis police last week. Talk about protest and athletes involvement in what is going on right now. We welcome to the show one of our favorite and most frequent contributors, an ESPN senior writer. You can also hear him on NPR weekend edition Saturday. Among his many excellent books, full dissidents, the heritage, sisters and champions, the last hero shut out and there are so many more. Howard Bryant joins us. Howard, thank you for being with us. Hey, Jeremy. Howard, um, you know, I've been following you this week on Twitter um, and last week, and of course we've known each other a long time, and and I really just want to start by asking you, um, how are you you processing everything that's been going on?
1: Well, I think that it's, I, on the one hand, Jeremy, we do this every day, right? I mean, I think that I, I think there's an interesting place for us as journalists, number one, that when there's disasters and when there's crises, we get in the middle of it and we try to make sense of it and we try to do this. We, we do this for the public because it's our jobs, and then sometimes we forget to do it for ourselves because we are supposed to be out there covering this and giving people the information that they need. What's been really interesting for me during this period is now that I'm a parent with a 15-year-old, through his eyes, it's been really different because now he wants to go out there. I mean, one, he's been cooped up in the house for three months. And two, you're seeing this moment in time affect his generation, and they have an idea of what they want this world to look like. And, and he came in the house the other day and was talking about how I'm going to the protest. I'm like, what protest? And he says, oh, there's a protest out, you know, at three o'clock and I'm going and I'm like, all right, no, I'm, I would rather you ask. <laughs> so then instead of tell me that you're going. And, you know, it was very interesting because I realized that with all the things that I write about, about accountability and about my worldview and how I see this country and how I see this world, it was very difficult for me to try to say to him, how am I going to tell him he can't go out and be a part of this? How can I say, of all people, how can I say to him, no, you can't go out in the street, where I tell people in my projects, this is where you need to go in times of crisis. So we went out together. And it was interesting being out there. Of course, there were a few things that hit me. Number one, I was thinking to myself, aren't we in the middle of a pandemic? So you've got 1,500 people out there all wearing masks, but they're eight inches apart from each other. And so I'm like, I I guess social distancing has gone out the window. But then you also see here in, you know, lovely Northampton, Massachusetts, 1,500 kids, all, you know, black, white, mostly majority white, camped out in front of the police station. And then you look downstairs and you see the police with their riot shields and canine dogs and everything else in the canine units. And I'm thinking – something could go off here. I mean, this is actually starting to feel a little dangerous. I was happy that nothing happened, that there was no escalation, but it was certainly another example of how close we are that we're in the middle of something right now and and we have to confront being in the middle of it, instead of constantly talking about bordering on or nearing, we are in the middle of something that this generation hadn't seen before.
0: We're speaking with Howard Bryant and Howard, um, I had a conversation earlier in the week with David Fisdale, head coach and assistant coach in the NBA for 17 years, and he wrote an essay for The Undefeated, where you write as well. Um, he wrote an essay uh, about his feelings about this moment, as um, someone who was a high schooler in L.A. at the time of uh, Rodney King, and now he's he's got a baby on the way, and and his his fears um, and his hopes, um, but especially from the perspective as a parent, a- and and you have a 15 year old as as a father um, as a father of. You know, uh, uh, of an African American boy in this society, fifteen-year-old who wants to go out there and wants to have his voice heard and be part of the protests. What what is it? What is it like dealing with um, these situations?
1: Well, it's chilling. It's frightening as hell because you realize. And I told him, I said, "Okay, I'm going to let you go out there. I'm going to go out there with you." But I had to come back in and do some work for for ESPN. So I said, okay, I'm going to leave you out here, but I don't want you on the front lines. I don't want you anywhere near the front. I want you to observe. I want you to watch. I want you to see. And when I came back in and had to do my Zoom talk, you could feel this thing escalating because then they started marching in front of the house in front of City Hall. And so the chants were getting louder and louder. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm in the house. I have no idea where this kid is right now. And... And you know, then a few people, I guess, had spray painted the the side of the police station. And and I don't know any of this yet because I'm in the house doing an interview. And so when I finally get back outside, I notice that they're all in front of the police station again. And you can see the graffiti on the side that wasn't there when, when, when I had been out there. So in the span of about an hour, things had totally escalated. And then, of course, I finally, you know, wade through the crowd and I find him and he's sitting there taking a knee. Um, I think, it's, I, I think it's, it's frightening, but I also think there's something else at work, at work here too, Jeremy. And that is, as much as we focus on the effects of all of this on African Americans, what you're really seeing is an effect on the democracy. You're looking at this country, and if you look at all of the different video clips and footage around the country, especially New York and D.C., you're looking at a whole lot of white people out there in the streets. And you're looking at a whole lot of white people out there in the streets getting getting hit by police and being clubbed and having, you know, their bikes stolen and getting pushed over and being shot at, you know, in Minneapolis with rubber bullets and with pepper spray and, and, and smoke canisters and everything else. So I caution people to, to think of to not think of this as a black issue. It's not a black issue. This is an authority issue, and what you're seeing right now, whether it is the unmarked, unidentified, you know, law enforcement people in, in D.C. who won't tell you if they're, you know, what branch of government they're from or from the military they're from, and when you see the police in the riot gear and you see you see that the National Guard is standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial, essentially pointing their weapons at American citizens, this is an everybody issue right here. And this is not something that is relegated to black people. It's a a question when we look at this as once more, we are told to respect the authority of the nation. We are told that to let the laws work. And what what we're seeing here is a reaction when those very laws aren't put into place, that it took protest, it took people in the street To get those four officers in Minneapolis arrested, never mind charged or convicted, just to get them arrested, it took protests in the streets. So what does that really say about the fidelity of these laws and about about the, the strength of these bonds? And that's where I look at this country. And when you ask me if I'm afraid, I'm not afraid for being a black person. We've been dealing with this the whole time. We're always afraid. We're—I was afraid whether it was '92 with Rodney King when I was in California, or whether it was Ferguson or whatever. The real issue is is that this is something that has has transcended the entire country.
0: We're speaking with Howard Bryant, and Howard, you mentioned um, the white people we're seeing in these protests, and we've been talking this week about the white athletes who've been speaking up as well, and how that represents. Um, a change from what we have typically seen, even in the course of the last several years, in terms of the athletes who choose to speak up on social justice issues, civil rights issues,
1: political issues. Well, Jeremy, you can't tell people that you live in a free country and then spray them in the face with pepper spray. You can't tell people that they live in a free country and have MRAPs rolling down the street in suburban Minneapolis. You, you can't, you know, people are going to react to that. People in America, you know, especially white Americans, they believe that they are free and they are finding out that they're not free. And that reaction is where things really explode. And I feel like once again, we look at sports And now people are starting to have this sort of recrimination or they're reflecting back on, should we have listened to Colin Kaepernick or what, you know, what could we have done differently or where are the athletes now? Um, And I look at it and I go, well, or why is this moment, you know, why is this moment different from Ferguson? Well, back then, I think a lot of people thought they were free. And I think that I, and you and I have talked about this over the years, you know, when we're talking about some of these issues, If you were in 2008, And that was your first election. If you were 18 years old in 2008, now you're 30. And you might, you really thought, you remember those scenes in Grant Park in 2008, you may have really thought that there was going to be a a post-racial country. And so you know you have people you have people believing in what this promise was going to be the first black president, et cetera, et cetera. Then you see this retrenchment and you see this violence, and you see you see the immigration you see all of these different ideas just collapsing in front of you, and so now you're starting to wonder what was all of this and I think on the one hand, I think in some ways a lot of the white kids that are out there, they have it worse than the black kids. Obviously the black kids have to worry about the sort of wanton violence that police will inflict on you where they'll think twice before clubbing some white kid. But in terms of disillusionment, I think that the white disillusionment is far more pronounced because they actually believe in the structure because the structure is supposed to serve them. And when it doesn't, you see them out there in full force as well.
0: Howard, in terms of sports, and you are a historian of sports and you're a historian of activism in sports, what we've been seeing um, from figures uh, in the sports community, athletes, coaches in the last 10 days, where does it fit into the history of activism uh, from, from the world of sports?
1: I'm not sure it does in some ways, and I think the reason is is because the corporate pressure on the game is so much more pronounced today than it was before because of all of these different cross-pollinating partnerships and everything else. And so you're seeing these, these massive sort of sweeping statements that were all in it together, whereas before, teams stayed out of that stuff. And so when you had unrest, the teams acted as if they weren't even really part of the society in a lot of ways. But today, that's very different. Today, all your corporate partners are out there putting out slogans and statements and everything else to show that they're on the right side of these issues, to show their constituencies and their fan bases that they are indeed part of the solution. So now what does that do? What does that do for the industry of sports that you've created? Part of me believes, Jeremy, that this is the end of of the 9-11 era of sports. How on earth right now can you reopen the game with a law enforcement appreciation night? How on earth can you, at a time when the National Guard is pointing its weapons at American citizens, how can you have a military appreciation night at a ballpark when when the games do reopen? Part of me thinks that what we're really recognizing, in addition to not knowing what the game is going to look like, whether or not guys can high-five or whether fans are going to wear masks, on top of that, the entire sort of culture is going to look very, very different, very, very differently now if you're watching a game and, and players are wearing camouflage jerseys because it, it lands very differently with all of this unrest. So I think there's an opportunity now as well to see what is going to, you know, what does this new era of sports look like? How is it, the game going to be packaged? How is it going to be sold? On another, on another side, I think with the Drew Brees issue, you're also seeing the the ahistorical, or actually the historical link of white players not getting involved, and now there seems to be a demand that they actually be part of it in some in some way, because historic yeah, historically, people look at activism and they look at they look at social issues as a black player problem, as a black issue, and that the you know how come. Tiger Woods hasn't done more. How come Michael Jordan hasn't done more? Let's talk about what Tommy Smith and John Carlos and Ali did do. But nobody says, well, gee, where was Joe Namath on this issue? Where was Bob Greasy? Where was Joe Montana? Where were they? No one asked that question. And now you're starting to see guys like, you know, even Braden Holtby um, out there, the goalie with the, with the Washington Capitals came out, made a great uh, statement on social media the other day. I think I think more and more players are realizing, and maybe it's more the moment itself, um, that they're recognizing that we all have to say something. I think everyone is feeling that this moment is a very, very special one in an election year, with a pandemic, with more violence, that we are on the brink of something that we all have to pay really close attention to.
0: Howard Bryant, senior writer for ESPN uh, and a frequent guest here on The Sporting Life. Howard, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your thoughts this week. My pleasure, Jeremy. I'm Jeremy Schaap, and you can listen to new editions of The Sporting Life every Saturday and Sunday morning on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app, beginning at 6 a.m. Eastern time.